do the crossword puzzle together i have no memory of this at all and yes one i day, do of course and one day you said to me after we finished the puzzle and we were like quiet you were like well i guess this is really all there is to our relationship <laughs> <laughs> that's why we had to start the podcast all we have all we have is the crossword puzzle <laughs> well we would do it very we would do it every day it was a very yeah. big highlight of of the working day is to come down and do the crossword puzzle at lunch yes yes and complain about it sometimes but um uh, and you I, made me a much better puzzle doer because i had oh, only recently begun really i only started doing it after my dad died uh-huh. and doing it with you I felt like you were very good at it and I learned a lot. Oh, I thought, I thought you were very good at it and I learned a lot. So oh, well, yeah. the feeling was mutual. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, that was, that's great. We challenged each other much like we do on the podcast, Maroon exactly. on Mars with Matt and exactly. Hillary. Um, but I just started redoing, I, I read, I started redoing it. I started doing it mm-hmm. again because of the app. Right. Um, yeah, like yeah, yeah. a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago. And um, I'm just noticing that it's getting, it's gotten worse because oh, oh. I haven't, I had not been doing it for four or five years or something like that. Like since I had stopped working at math more or less, and it has gotten worse Yes, and oh, its yeah. ideology has become much more like transparent, like that it, that it requires a certain level of education and cultural knowledge. And it speaks to a very, very specific like New York Times reading audience. Yeah, and it, it reveals that particularly by the clues that are supposed to not, are supposed to be speaking to a broader audience for one. But the other thing that I think has gotten bad about it, and so my sister does it every day. She, I believe has done it like on the app and she, you know, does it in the like, you know, keep the streak going, keep the streak alive kind of way. Um, uh, but uh, I also think it is, uh, terribly edited now like yeah. yes they're often very repetitive day to day i know there's repeat a little day to day and the kind of clue that makes me the maddest is the one that's in quotes and so it's supposed to be like a phrase that you say and basically in most of the puzzles the answers to those are just like a combination of words you know like it's not like an idiomatic phrase no it just is like you know the clue is like see you later. And the answer is, you know, I'll catch you next week. Yes. (laughs) Just like they have nothing. I mean, like pointless, like pointless makes, they make no sense. The repetitive, the, the, the repetition of like the three letter words has gotten way more simplistic and lame. Like it was common where you'd see the same three letter word, like twice a week or something. Now I feel like it's like three or four times a week you're seeing you know, mm. art or, um, or whatever dag or what, I don't know, whatever, um, or uh, DDE or whatever. It's just, and, and yeah. And the clues make no sense. No. 
Um, they they feel are very AI generated. It, it's it is bleak. It is bleak out there. <laughs> now they say I hear that the New Yorker crossword puzzle is supposed to be actually a good crossword puzzle. Really? Okay. I've heard that, but I don't know if it has a convenient app in the way that the New York Times one does. So I have started. You probably saw this when you were at my house, but I've started um, just buying books of old Saturday ones Mm -hmm. so I can have my crossword puzzle with breakfast fix. We did did that years ago. Beth and I um, bought a big book of crossword puzzles because, you know, just one, the one from the New York Times wasn't enough. Uh, you know, but I've been doing the, the, I've been doing the app one right before bed. Like I'll get into bed, do the crossword puzzle on the app and then read, um, because, and it's for the one for the next day. So it's like Wednesday night, I'll be doing Thursday's crossword puzzle, which leaves me nothing to do on Thursday until I go to bed and then do Friday's crossword puzzle. So it's fine. Um, and they're also, I mean, you know, you do like to finish it so that it is easy when it's easy, you like to finish it which is also, you know, pandering. Yes. Um, But then um, uh, the really annoying thing is the ones that I don't finish or I I fill in all the letters and then it says, oops, you've got some letters wrong and you have to go back and like correct them. And some of them are just like frustratingly, like it doesn't make any difference. Like this, both of these letters work, but you just arbitrarily want brisk instead of crisp for example right, right. <laughs> it wasn't arbitrary because there's no such thing as a penal it was a right. kennel <laughs> fine still all right yeah. yeah anyway i needed to get that off my chest i understand I to talk to you about that uh before we uh and you know reinstitute cold opens before yeah we- yeah that was good it was completely <laughs> completely a surprise to me i had no idea but you know of the like four topics that i can always talk about yeah one of them is the New York Times crossword puzzle. Exactly. So <laughs> exactly, which I knew, which I knew. And um, so I'm glad we were able to, yeah, to, that to dredge that up. That um, okay. So welcome to the show. This is Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. Uh, this is our last episode on the 2312 uh, season. Woohoo. And we're going to plow through 60 pages of this book, which is probably the longest stretch that we've done for this this season yeah. and we're gonna it'll probably be a marathon a bit of a marathon so we wanted to hopefully we won't yeah anyway yeah yeah um at the beginning because it's going to be a marathon episode and because hardly anyone listens to the ends of episodes anyway um because they're just so long and people probably fall asleep to them or whatever i wanted to say two things up front at least one thing maybe two things one is I want to thank the people who very generously donate to the show. You do not have to do this. Um, maybe if we actually start writing newsletters and stuff, we will force you to pay a dollar for them or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh God, you froze. Um, but that'll be, you know, oh, I did. I, am I still here? Yeah. yeah but you're okay. like on a leg. Okay. Well, 2022 is going to be the year that I finally become a right whore and, uh, <laughs> A disciplined writer, um, and so maybe we will do the um, the newsletters. But in the meantime, there are there are a few people who actually donate money to the show. Which again, you do not have to do this. Um, but they are Adam, Travis, Benjamin, Paula, 
Elizabeth, Bill, Angela, and Margot. Thank you all. Thank you all. Uh, Paula is my mom and you really don't have to donate mom uh, because I know you don't um, listen. <laughs> and if you want to give me $10 a month, you can just Venmo me. Okay. I also, um, can I just, let me just point something out. You know, yep. one of the few like stats that anchor lets you see is the uh, declared gender of the, of the listeners. Yes. Um, and you know, it, it remains a source of amusement to me that the show is primarily listened to by people who identify as men by something like 80% 80 to 85% of our listeners. Yeah. And then there's like a chunk who identify as non-binary. And then there's like, you know, like 10% or something identify as women. But you notice in that list of people who with incredible generosity and thoughtfulness are giving us money for doing the show, which is, which is useful. Like my, it paid for my microphone, which right. um, I think has improved something. Probably. It improved my microphone. Who knows? Uh, uh, but you know, that list, I would say sounds like it's like around 50, 50 um, people with, at least people with male sounding names and people with female something. Yes, names. it is. I believe it is about 50, 50. Um, anyway. Anyway. Um, not thanks. that that means anything. Not I'm not a gender essentialist. I'm this, simply pointing something out. <laughs> merely anecdotal observation. Merely anecdotal. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, thank you to our one uh, percent of listeners in Switzerland, to our less than one percent of listeners in Belgium and Hong Kong. Oh. Shout mm -hmm. out to Turkey and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, as well as <laughs> I can't imagine why less than 1% means less than one person. So why Iceland and Puerto Rico and Azerbaijan are listed on this? I, no, 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 I, no idea how I, I, I'm very suspicious of anchors ability to capture data of any sort. <laughs> All right. Um, so thank you to those people. Yeah. Um, thank you everybody. And if, and also let this serve as a reminder, if you forgot that you're um, sending us money every month, you can cancel that yeah, if you, you want. Uh, we'll continue to do it, to do the, the show. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, so this is our last episode of this season. We're probably going to take most of January off uh, yeah. and then come back. And I believe, do you want to announce the next book? Yeah. Are we doing Green Earth? I think we're going to do Green Earth. Right, we're going to do Green Earth. Uh, we're not going to do the three books independently. The 30 Days of Rain, 40 Signs of Darkness, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Is that what it is? Uh, that, that, is that is what those books are called. 50 Shades of Grey. Um, and then <laughs> we're not going to do that. We're just going to do the Green Earth Compendium. Right. Which is somewhat revised. I, I think it's revised from the original threes science in the capital novels yeah. um and uh and yeah because he yeah so we're, we're, that's the one we're going to do it's a thousand pages this near 21 23 12 is no 23 12 is what 500 pages or so it took us six months to do thousand pages yeah. of green earth i think we can do it in less than a year. <laughs> uh, oh, I think we can. I mean, I think we can do it faster. I don't, yeah. my memory, I, I read the science in the capital books, but quite 
a while ago. And my memory is, uh, makes me think that we can probably go through them more quickly than we went. Th- They're just like not as um, dense as 2312 is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh and they don't have the kind of like, um, they don't have the kind of like formal play in them uh-huh. also. I mean, I don't know. I think it should be interesting. One, because I think that was like a transitional period in Stan's writing between Mars and um, the like extraordinarily inventive and experimental in a variety of ways, novels that came, that have come in the last decade or 15 years or whatever yeah um i don't even know what year it is now uh and um also i think it'll be interesting because the um i'm i'm thinking that we will probably want to think about the green earth a lot in relation to ministry for the future um uh and you know I, i think as a record something you know books that felt um in some ways quite anticipatory about climate change. Um, you know, I do, I think it'll be interesting to see what they look like yeah. um, now. I think that's, yeah, that kind of sums up the logic of our choice. Cause we still have the California trilogy, New York 2140, Antarctica, Galileo's dream. Those are the big ones that we yeah. haven't done yet. And um, there's a lot of people, uh, listeners who, advocate for different books and really are anxious for us to do New York 2140 and um, whatever we deliberate, we deliberated, debilitated, we debilitated. (laughs) We're debilitated. Yeah. And we decided (laughs) on green earth. So that's fun. I haven't, so get to reading. I've never read this one before. Um, If you're planning on reading along with us, make sure you read the book first (laughs) before you, before you start listening to the show, because we will be talking about the book in its entire, although we'll be talking about it in sequence, we'll be talking about it in its entirety, if that makes sense. Right, right. Yes, exactly. And and we'll send you an update uh, later in January about when exactly we'll get started. Yes, and uh, we'll uh, maybe we'll do a, a movie, a Marooned at the Movies or two um, along Very the possible, way. very Which possible. Would be fun. Uh, cool. So we're uh, we're finishing out 2312. That's right. And in this section that we read for today, the mystery gets resolved. Mm-hmm. The wrongdoers get punished. Right. And Swan and Waram get married. That's exactly right. So this is a this section is um, you know. Uh, one would think that it would be a section that's all about like kind of closure resolution resolution and closure like you know like the most the most um uh what the most like novelistic form of closure there is that is marriage um or the resolution of a mystery i guess is another form of uh novelistic closure different kind of novel maybe um and yet uh i think that these last sections actually don't really, they, they leave open and um, make a point of kind of pointing to openness as much as they um, produce resolution. At least that's kind of, that was my sort of read while I was rereading it this morning. I, I think I agree with that for sure. I mean, the wrongdoers are punished 
um, in a sort of semi-open-ended way. I mean, even the Jeanette and <clears throat> the uh, cohort of sort of inspectors and, and individuals who are tasked with kind of meeting out that punishment, even they say, oh, well, maybe this will happen or maybe that'll happen with these yeah. folks that we're sending off on this, you know, uh, generation ship, basically. Um, and the marriage is, it is a resolution in a way, but it's also just like a complete, it, it's gone into by both Waram and Swan as an opening up rather than a kind of right. closing down right. or both a closing and an opening, right? right? right. Um, uh, a transitional moment rather than a, some kind of resolution. So- right. Um, which is, yeah, um, yeah, not a, maybe not a, a traditional or what you would expect to be a traditional novelistic ending. I mean, I think that the, the, the marriage, you know, uh, the marriage seems to me to, to in some ways seem like it works very much in the way that you would expect a marriage in a novel to work. Um, in that we end like with the marriage itself um, and with sort of a moment of conversation between them, right? Um, and that the, you know, the marriage is also a kind of like a resolution of contraries, right? Uh, and a moment of sort of social cohesion, even a kind of vision of a sort of planetary cohesion in the kind mm -hmm. of larger ceremonial context of it. Um, and all of that stuff feels both uh, like it references, um, you know, comedy as a generic form in which things work out all right in the end and the order of the world is, res is restored. Um, and also, and also, I you know feels like it references the marriage plot, which kind of um, uh, you know famously is not a plot about marriage, <laughs> but just a plot that leads to marriage and a marriage that again is supposed to offer a kind of um, you know uh, appropriate ideological resolution to a large scale sort of social problem. And I, you know I, that seems very. I, that's those things are are clearly quite self-conscious on the part of this novel to like reference reference those kinds of closures and um uh and not really sort of like accept them in on a variety of grounds but i think it's an interest anyway i think i think it's a very interesting like the the mode of the novel is still really intriguing to me because i i also think although we get in this section we do get a fair amount of detail about um, that lets us also wrap up the mystery. Um, and we get some detail that lets us think again about the sort of general conditions in the solar system and, and how like planetary relations are, are planetary and um, other, uh, uh, other body relations are, are going to come into something that is more harmonious and perhaps less balkanized. Um, despite the fact that we get those things, you know, there is, I don't know, there is a way in which the, the kind of the resolution is awfully fast and mm. in some ways feels kind of like to one side of all of the other stuff that's going on in the book. I was trying to describe this, the whole book to somebody and um, with its kind of complete, like 
you know, real mix of genre and, and kind of, um, rejection of certain tropes that are within some of the genres that it incorporates and stuff. And I, I kind of, I hit on like, it's almost an anti-novel in, in some Mm. ways. I mean, it's recognizably a novel, but it's also, it's just like, doesn't do certain things that you would expect like conventional novels to do, or especially, I mean, I also was thinking about, um, in terms of the resolution, I was thinking about the end of Red Moon as well, which a lot of people, when Red Moon came out, they're like, there's got to be a sequel, right? Because it ends completely openly. And um, this like would leave the door open for a sequel for sure, but also doesn't really need it because it kind of tell, I mean, and and inscribed within the novel, within this novel, 2312 in like the Extracts 18 chapter, it talks explicitly about like, a history is a is like a collapsing of wave functions, just like a sentence is. And you're you're you don't know what what is historical or what's an event until long after the fact. And they only seem to make sense in retrospect. And then when they do, they only make one kind of sense. Um, so that you're like sort of constantly rewriting these stories or right. for yourself uh, for a present moment and stuff. And um, so it kind of gives the kind of point that it's like that um yeah it, it just kind of ironizes the idea of not just an ending but like a story in the first place in a way like a coherent congealed story yeah it seems it seems like uh i was try- yeah i was trying to think about the if the we talked early on about the degree to which, and I don't think either one of us precisely thought this was the right way to describe it, but the degree to which like the story of Swan is a kind of Bildungsroman story, or at least a story of some kind of personal transformation. Um, and it is also clearly the story, the story of an artist and the story of an artist uh sort of becoming not an artist anymore, right? I mean, we don't see the story of her, we don't see Swan becoming an artist. We see her at this kind of moment um, uh, in which she's turned, you know, all of her artwork is in the past um, and her and her biggest, um, you know, her her design work, her, her work on, on creating uh, the Terraria is also in the past. Um, so we see her in a kind of, um, you know, from mourning Alex into this kind of interregnum period in which she is not sure precisely who or what she is, but she's, I mean, she's not only 113 years old, she's like literally just so full of all of these pieces of her past life. You know, I mean, there's a way in which like we get to you know, I don't know, you get to a certain age and you have all of this memory. I mean, and that age could be 12, but you know, like you have all this memory and all this experience built up inside you. Um, and it makes the question of like how you move on to something new or do something new or have a new experience or a new feeling feel difficult because like, oh, you're so full of this stuff. And in Swan, like she's, she's just literally full uh, of, of all of this past. Um, and, you know, for a while she's in a kind of, you know, there is some sense, is she, does she have to renounce those 
former ways of being. And of course, part of the relationship with Waram is that he would never ask that of her and that he looks on her with the same genuine curiosity that is not judgment that he looks on everybody else with, which is one of my favorite parts about why she loves him, that he looks at her the same way that he looks on the world generally. But so, so we have this kind of interesting, like, uh, uh, you know, whatever's happening, whatever is going to happen with Swan next, we don't know, other than she has gotten to the place where it's okay that she's carrying around all this past stuff and, you know, like bird glands or whatever it is, <laughs> whatever. I like in the, I think, is it in the epilogue? Mm-hmm. No, I bet it's somewhere else, but um, she, I think it's just in a chapter called Swan where um, she's thinking about herself and Waram and um, she uh, thinks of herself as, you know, the mercurial person. Um, It's on my page 545. Um, She's out walking the surface of Mercury and sees like a group of sunwalkers who are taking mm-hmm. turns walking and pulling each other like sleeping and then being pulled by each other and they're kind of in this space of um you know tr- walking together pull- pulling sleeping people along how beautiful the sense of trust and care the playful handing over of your life to strangers part of being mercurial um and she is one of these she identifies as one of these spacers these wanderers these people who mm-hmm. are like not tied down to anybody um, and I mean, maybe we'll get into this more well, as we kind of look deeper into it, but, oh yeah, on the previous page, it's, um, buh, buh, buh. just, she's just thinking about marriage, this kind of, um, you know, concept from the middle ages, um, at least so it seemed to her and, and to many others she knew it was the current structure of feeling in her culture and time spacers were free humans free at last and human at last. So they, so they all felt and encouraged each other to feel. And she had always believed it, always agreed it was right. But structures of feeling were cultural, historical. They changed over time like people did. The structures themselves went through their own reincarnations. So if, so if cultures changed over time and an individual lived on through a change in that culture, then didn't the individual change too? Could they, could she? Um, and she was this part, she's been this person who is, is a constant wanderer to walk in the dawn perpetually, also devoutly to be wished, who could stand high noon or the wane of day, leave the dawn behind, run back into the night, forestall the day, who knew what it would bring. She had no plan, no idea. So she's in this kind of mercurial state. She's a mercurial. Um, and, but then, um, I want to hear things that interest me, that surprise me, no matter how impossible I am to surprise, except in truth, I am so easily surprised. How could it be that someone was not there to surprise someone so easily surprised? How could it be that someone was not there to surprise someone so easily surprised? The Saturnine person. What if there was a person you could depend on, someone who was steady, reliable, predictable, resolute, decisive after due thought, generous, kind, phlegmatic, and yet prone to little gusts of enthusiasm, usually aesthetic pleasures of one sort or another, happy in danger, a little drunk in danger, someone capable of loving a landscape. So 
on and on and on. So this meeting of the mercurial and the Saturnine, right? And like Stan's recurring thing of thinking about personality types, phlegmatic, um, those Gramscian or no Gramscian squares, Grimash squares. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, it helps to remember that these are, you know, characters and it's good to have div- character devices so that you can like divide up specific uh responses and personality traits among your different characters and see how they sort of fit together. I don't know where I'm going with all of that, but that kind of seems like part of a, you know, a conventional narrative resolution to a novel in a certain way, but here it's sort of deconstructed and like put on display as kind of the thought of the character themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, and I think the, um, a little bit later in that part that you were reading, um, if all our acquaintances were characterized in language only, and here are we in Swan's head, or is this is this the narrator? Um, right. If all our acquaintances were characterized in language only, we would look like collectors of contradictions, paradoxes, oxymorons. For every kind of this, there was a balance of that. People cut both ways. In someone like him, Waram, a little cheery laugh uh, began to seem like boisterousness, and and as so, I mean, which I think then you know, that open, that opens us up to the, you know, really the inadequacy of, uh, I mean, so language isn't, isn't inadequate to describe a character because a character is just made up of language. Um, but language is inadequate to describe a person or to describe your relationship to that person or to say why you like somebody, you know, like this is like a, I think, uh, I feel like a terrible thing that like people and couples say to each other is the demand to say why it is that you like the other person, you know, which is inevitably, inevitably you're going to say something wrong. Right. I mean, right. that's a, yeah, that's a demand the- to reveal that you don't, you don't really like, or you don't really know them. Right. Um, but then from there, she, she passes by one of her last um, uh, um, sort of uh, land art projects which is this crazy thing where she was like melting metals and creating little gates that they would flow through and they're supposed to fill in words. And I have to say like, uh, so, and, and the idea would be that when the sun would hit, it either flows down and spells out live or flows down and spells out die. Gotta say not vibing with this as a project. (laughs) I feel like this is, this is a moment when I don't feel a ton of faith in, in Swan's kind of like artistic consciousness. But then the great thing about it is that like something messed up and instead the word that got spelled out was lie, which is, you know, a funny joke about making art um, and about all kinds of other things. But I think part of what it is and about how, you know, trying in trying to produce the characterization that works through antimonies or that works through like opposition um, you know, the couple form is also supposed to work through, you know, as the uniting of opposites, right? Right. Mar- right. Mars and Mars and Venus, Mercury and Saturn, whatever. Um, uh, um, but, but, you know, like here, like, not only is that, does that sort of like get exposed, like as a lie, but, but also like what happened in her artwork and its best part was really that it turned out like, yeah, it was just like, it was not, it was contingent. And it wasn't even the contingency that she thought that it would be. Right. Because the little gates that she set up didn't operate in the ways that she meant for them to. And instead it did something else um, uh, that was not what she expected. And then it's the, it's there, just like glowing, you know, 
<laughs> right. Glowing a, a bright swirl of silver and copper, um, still like glowing metallically in the dark, <laughs> the dark land. And I, I kind of feel like that's a little bit of the energy of, uh, of this part of the book is that like, is the sort of, um, in what should be the moments of resolution, contingency just hangs around. And the end of this chapter is uh, she's there, you know, having her mercurial experience and who kind of like, you know, thunking along on his newly grown leg shows up. But Waram, who's like, right. you know, oh, it's it's actually quite hard to walk on this thing. Can we get back? <laughs> I didn't bring any food. I'm hungry. <laughs> exactly. I didn't bring any food. I but came then, all prepared. But I love the interaction with um, her and Pauline or the three of them. Uh Pauline and Swan and Waram because Waram it's like what do you you know what do you think Swan you want to get married and she's like I don't know and then Waram's like Pauline do you want to get married and Pauline's like yes and like, <laughs> Waram's like all right cool um and he has this but because he has this and he discusses it with Jeanette earlier on too about um this concept that Pauline and Swan are kind of one they're a new thing I mean it says even they're a new thing yeah um, that Swan program, Pauline, and that it was at another point, oh, at the end of the chapter, right at the very end, um, over time, Swan, uh, okay, over time, Swan realized that that would matter, that he believed in Pauline. She walked toward the nearest platform, he followed her, that he believed in Pauline, like Pauline's not just an imaginary friend, you mm -hmm. know, Pauline's not just this computer program that she programmed Pauline is like some real person or it is, or, or she is an imaginary yeah. friend. Yeah. 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 And that, um, he can interact with Pauline as an equal to Swan and yeah. that's important for her too. And that's, and that's something that other people don't get that Jeanette doesn't get. And it's kind of that, that single line kind of sheds light on why, um, Swan acts the way that she does when Jeanette asks her to turn Pauline off. It's yeah. like, you don't understand what Pauline is yeah. and what we are together. Yeah. I think that's, so that's such a good point. And Lulu, you got to move over, hon. Um, and uh, because I, I think that that is a way to begin. Uh, yeah. So, so first of all, I, I think part of um Part of what it seems that um, their marriage or even their just like their relationship is about um, is a kind of, um, you know, it the reconciliation it produces seems to be a reconciliation between something like love and the idea that to love someone is to demand that they be singular or be unchanging or be recognizable, right? I mean, that that seems to at least... I mean, and there is this kind of unevenness between them because Waram, you know, um, is just al is always Waram <laughs> in certain kinds of ways. So I think that that's an, that is that is sort of an interesting thing, right? That the um, <clears throat> that we don't have to have a kind of like symmetry in place here, and which which in some ways goes on goes along with although we read them as I think. Um, you know, uh, 
man and woman, uh, it would be interesting. I think the feeling would actually be quite different if, if they were just pronounced differently. I'm not saying that this is the way that it should be, but that if they were just pronounced differently, then we would also have to be constantly remembering that neither one of them is a man or a woman, um, you know, on any kind of bioessentialist terms and not even actually on certain just kind of like everyday easy language use sorts of terms. So that I think is an interesting yeah. piece. But the other thing that I think is really interesting, and I think you're right, that this is sort of a place where we see the line of thinking about the cubes, which is can be, I think, hard to fit into the whole of the novel. I mean, it obviously matters. And we get a last quantum walk section Mm -hmm. in this kind of closing movement, in the movement that should be about resolving the mystery and and resolving the love story. Um, We have, you know, like, you know, we not, and it matters not just because Swan rescues that last cube, but also, or, you know, like helps them get out of the, uh, uh, get out of danger. Um, but also because we just, we get that so late, we get that quantum walk section quite late in the, in the novel. Right. And the resolution that we get, um, you know, so we get the sort of, okay, here, here is what happened. This is how we can understand, you know, what happened to Terminator what the source of this struggle was. Um, but there is, but there is something that feels like the resolution that Jeanette and the police force produce, which is to take 400 cubes and one, you know, it's like a few dozen human beings. Like it's not just the one guy, but it's yeah. Yeah. And and, I mean, and this one ill socialized guy, right. Uh, and to exile and to put them on a ship that they can't get out of and that they can't control, um, uh, and that punishment, which is quite extreme, I think, yes. seems like it goes along. This is, I think, as you were saying, it goes along with with Jeanette's feeling that they're for sure not people, they're not persons of any kind, and we don't really need to worry about that. And that guy who planned things is also a bad person who, you know, so that's all fine, right? Um, So I don't know, there's not, it doesn't quite, um, so the sort of the problem of the cubes, like, is allowed to continue to be kind of a problem in a way that makes the resolution of the mystery, at least for me, feel like even more uncomfortable than it would just kind of on the face of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're also, they, they really do. Um, I mean, in a, in an interesting way, you can think of the exile solution, quote unquote solution as another, as a kind of extension of a kind of colonialist extension. Let's just send them to Australia. Yeah. And if they ever come back, we'll deal with it then. And hopefully we'll have figured out the solution to the cubes by the time they do right. figure out a right. way to come back. Right. And, and other than that, we can just send them off and not have to worry about them, not have to think about them to a new place, to another place. And it's a way of, yeah, like ignoring the real, the underlying problem of which has, to, which does have to do with kind of, yeah, personhood um, and maybe longevity too. I mean, yeah, yeah the cubes, who knows how long the cubes are going to live that we can presume that the guy who's 
only like 37 years old who like led a damaged life and then, you know, worked with Lakshmi to facilitate this, these acts is not going to get, he doesn't have the longevity treatment. He's not going to live for hundreds of years. Um, but, um, but yeah, it is this kind of weird. I mean, it was pretty, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like a shocking, it's shocking. Um, punishment and it's not satisfactory to Waram. Like Waram's not satisfied no. with it. Jeanette no. seems satisfied with it. Oh, Jeanette's satisfied. He's satisfied with it. Like he's a figure of like law and order. Yeah. Um, so and, that, yeah. oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, well, I was going to say, I think that that tells us. So, um, so one thing that makes me, that I feel quite suspicious about in Jeanette's perspective is that Jeanette says, um, well, it's exile. I'm an exile too. So right. I feel that I can, but I got to say Jeanette's exile is not at all like the punishment that's being inflicted here. Not which at is all like quite it. Clearly. I mean, I would say it's imprisonment. Yeah. I mean, they're just put in a floating prison Yeah. that, that even worse than, you know, like fucking Alcatraz or whatever, Yeah. like, uh, doesn't even have a, doesn't even have a, a, a spatial location. Right. No. Um, also, so, yeah. Also with all the cubes. So like you're trapped with your creations. It's like Victor Frankenstein and all of his monsters, yeah. um, <laughs> are off on an ice flow somewhere. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, except the cubes are even weirder than Frank, than the monster is because then the creature is because they're all try, trying to play chess all the time with each other. And Right. All right. And when they don't have and and they don't have access to the thing that the creature has access to, which is the possibility of producing a narrative account of the self, which That's we right. see from the quantum walks that yeah. they they have selves, but they can't come into narration, right? That's but, amazing. Yeah. Because it's just a surfeit of detail. Yeah. And it's right, not, right, right. Right. They don't, they aren't telling stories. That's amazing. Yeah. Which is yeah. why, which is why the question, right? Do you want to play chess? Which is you know, it's like the Turing test question, but that's, you know, um, uh, uh, that, that like, um, uh, it suggests something about the way that there's not, they don't, they aren't able to like narrate, they aren't able to create self narration, right? Like chess, chess is a grasping for a kind of the certainty of narration because chess has a beginning, middle and end. It has a beginning, middle, and but end. But it's an artificially, um, an artificially bounded like set of right. of possible moves, and it has a beginning, middle, end. Not like the story of life, which doesn't right. have a beginning, middle, right. and end. It right. just has an ongoingness. Right. And so I think there's something. I mean, I was thinking like, uh, I mean, I quite like the character of of Jeanette um, for for uh, Jeanette being small. And yeah, but also like all cop characters, he's problematic. Yeah, yeah, and and in the end, also Jeanette, not uh, not the noir detective, right. right? I mean, not you know, this is not uh, who who is gonna um, you know who who in the end is is crushed um, you in one in one way or another, right? Oh. like fails, right? <laughs> Um, oh, the, the noir detective does. Yeah. The noir detective. Right. Right. Um, so in the, in the end, Jeanette is much more like, um, uh, what's his name? Murders in the room org. Uh, who's Dupin? Yeah. Dupin. Right. Yeah. Like the puzzle, 
loving the puzzle, loving to figure out the answer to the puzzle. Um, and then in the end, like and loving the timing. I mean, I just, I, right. you know, oh, with, with just like a, a synchronized watches and enough, enough, uh, you know, enough bodies we can drag all, but I mean, it is like, uh, there's, I don't know, there's something to me about, um, so if part of the, one of the things the novel seemed like it was, was like, okay, there's like the, de there's a detective story here, which is a little bit like a police story, a little bit of a detective story, a little bit of, you know, it has some generic variant in it, but it's a detective story. Um, and then there's, you know, the buildings Roman or the artist story or something like that, you know, I mean, we get Jeanette in the final, you know, Jeanette's there to marry them in the end. I mean, and I don't know, maybe like we could, you know, like think that that might make us wonder about why do the ceremony, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> but it does feel like the place where the detective story winds up here is in a profoundly troubling form of punishment that it works through a kind of certainty about like who is and isn't human. And a little bit, part of what's troubling about it is that guy who was the bad guy gets consigned to the category of not human. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore available to be fucking locked in a ship and sent out past the solar system. Yeah. Through only like the contingency of his upbringing, which was, you know, it's kind of written as a kind of cliche. It's, um, he was definitely, this is on my 522. Uh, they brought the lawn bowler in for questioning more than once. He never said a word. He was definitely human, a young man, 35 years old. They were able to trace him. So like, not unlike the dude from Ministry for the Future. Um, yeah. Fre Fred? Fre Frank? Frank. <laughs> Frank. So this is Frank. They were unable, they were able to trace him back from Swan sighting in the Chateau Garden to one of the unaffiliateds, one that would not give its name to outsiders. Interplan had it listed with accidental precedence as U-238. Um, uh, into that work, um, so then he was like born into like some religious cult um, with strict gender division, patriarchal poly polygamous. Um, stuck there for the age of four until um, departure by defection at age 24, learned programming on Vesta, known by no one, absorbed for the time in cube design at the Ceres Academy, but then left school, detached from the school culture, eventually kicked off Ceres for transgressing its security codes one too many times, then returned to his home rock, where for as far as anyone knew, he had remained, but in fact, no one had been watching. So it's kind of like cliched um, version of this disaffected, you know, detached youth brought up in like a fucked up culture. And right. in, um, he's an incel. He's an incel, bad programming, you know, bad wiring, falls victim to kind of susceptible, is susceptible to kind of mm -hmm. um, bad ideas and like evil forces like Lakshmi, who doesn't even get punished at all. No. And, um, and, and gets what she wants. Yeah. By, by, by mass popular acclaim. Yeah, uh, eco-terrorism works is the no, answer to this is, is yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a very, it is a very troubling kind of ending in terms of that detective fiction thing, because again, as you, I mean, as you say, just to reiterate, the noir detective himself is not implicated in 
the kind of rot that's at the core of the system that like yeah. we would expect in a noir. Rather, it's the kind of detective who I wrote Columbo in the <laughs> in the margin who, you know, sit, stands above it all. I mean, Columbo is also short. He's not a small, but he's short. Um, <laughs> and, you know, can pretty easily discern good from evil and that he stands apart from those things yeah. distinctly on the side of good. Did you have a moment in the I found a pronoun for Jeanette? Uh I found a he, a his. Oh, I found a he. Where's the he? So the oh, we're not going to be able to figure this out because of our stupid pagination. It's in the it's in that section where that I was just reading from. Um, the paragraph starts to Jeanette. This was what mattered. "Quote: I think the attacks on Terminator and Venus were political," he said to Waram. Where? The paragraph starts to Jeanette and it's underneath Yggdrasil. Wordless as the youth remained, there was no way to be sure. Blah, blah, blah. Next paragraph to Jeanette. This was what mattered. Oh, yeah. There's a he. And okay, earlier, Stan, alert, Stan. There's a he. And that in, in my edition. 524, 524 in my edition. Or in my uh, trade edition that is on 599 and also on 596 in mine there is a his referring to Jeanette where's yours uh so that is um uh, let's see. They landed outside Vinmara, and after that, Walram was thankful he was in a wheelchair because Jeanette terriered from one brief meeting to another. Skip a couple of paragraphs. Uh, uh, Jeanette conversed continually with people in person and over mobiles, unflustered but very intent, used to this kind of thing, used to even the idea of plunging into a fight between Venusian factions, which Waram thought must be extremely dangerous. When Jeanette seemed to be done for the moment and was sitting on the edge oh. of a table drinking coffee and looking at his wrist cube, Waram said curiously, so these pebble attacks, dot, dot, dot. I've got the his in mind too. Page 520, Stan. Yeah, all right. So this twi it's twice in that chapter. I'll send him an email. Um. <laughs> I also forgot to thank Stan at the very beginning of the episode amongst he's not one of our funders. Thank God. But uh, thank you for writing this book, Stan, and being our friend and um, writing all your books. And being I mean, a great obviously, guy. obviously. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, just, anyway. Okay. Anyway. Back yeah. Okay. So hardcore analysis. Well, so, I mean, I, you know, Yeah, I mean, I remember, so I remember the first time I read this being very haunted by this part. Um, and I, and feeling really unsure whether I should think that we're meant to kind of buy Jeanette's claim that I'm in exile, this is a recognizable form of punishment because it seems so different. And I think it's hard I think it's hard to know how to think about it. Is this a resolution or you know um are we supposed to think oh there must be punishment um you know of of some 
there must be punishment of some kind or another. I think for that, it definitely does matter that Lakshmi is not punished. Um, in fact, it seems like there's a sort of absurdity to punishment. Right. Um, clearly the destruction of the Yggdrasil um, and the killing of 3000 people there is a horrific crime. Um, and, and in some ways made worse by the idea that this guy did it as a kind of proof of con- concept, right? Right. right. Um, on the other hand, you know, um, we see, we hardly get to see him at all, except in the lawn bowling scene. Um, and we're clearly deal- dealing with somebody who is fucked up and damaged. But the real issue is the, is the cubes, is those 400 cubes. Yeah. Um, which I just like, I, I think it is unreconcilable. So I felt like when you were talking about Waram proposing to Pauline and this kind of acceptance of, of a something else, right? right? Here's a something else that we must, you know, stop thinking, you know, this is a person, this isn't a person, this is an right. addition. This is just a thing she had implanted in her head. Right. Something else is happening here. And that could be part of the story of, um, even of, even of loving another person, right? Yeah. And that, that then makes me think that like, yes, we should read this section, um, with a significant amount of suspicion and a kind of concern maybe for the parts of the solar systemic kind of agreement or consensus or hegemony that we see very little of, you know, that like often, I mean, this is like the classic, you know, you know, thing that cop shows do. We, I mean, we'll just like, let's take the wire as an example. You get a bunch of like appealing individualized, um, you know, characters who, you know, have certain kinds of despair at the system as a whole and act on their own intent, act on their own good intentions and occasionally like, you know, let a guy go or kind to a kid or whatever it is. And that serves like, you know, just in a fairly direct way to then disguise the systemic functioning of the police um, as an armed wing of the state, you know, as part of the state's like, um, yeah, right. So, so here, here also, I mean, you know, I don't know. I think here we get the glimpse of Jeanette as, um, you know, the detective who keeps us by focusing on the t- detective, um, we kind of don't see what the consequences are of, you know, quote unquote, solving a mystery. Yes, right. And all, but I think Waram participates in that dynamic as well. And that gives us license to um, accept the resolution and be uncomfortable with it. I mean, he's yeah. our uncomfortability surrogate, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> While at the same time brokering a new deal between a new triangular trade between mm-hmm. Mercury, Mars, and Saturn, right, which right. is going to be very po- profitable for Saturn. Right. But Waram gets to be uncomfortable with the exile thing. On my 527, it's at the end of a sec of probably the of the section sort of where the exile thing is being described. Waram was still not comfortable with Jeanette's solution, but every alternative he came up with was either too harsh, death for all of them, or too lenient, 
reintegration into society. And it makes it really interesting too that um, in the quantum walk, the quantum walk ends with Swan letting the cube go into New York City, yeah. into Manhattan. After what is a, a like a pretty clear reference to uh, to a Walt Whitman poem, yes. right? You know, to Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, right? Yeah. To the the beautiful multitude of the city that can take uh, yeah. and the and the and you know that vision of the beautiful experimental life that can include every everyone, right? Um, um, but so um, exile, the first starship, a prison. I mean, that's so key, and it like yeah. is really that's a very haunting. So this, you know, it makes me say this is not a utopian novel, you know, um, or it is a, not the kind of utopia. You, you can correct me on this, but like utopias aren't supposed to have prisons, right? Or they do, but they're different than the prisons that we have. No, oh, well, lots of utopias have prisons. Yeah, right? of course they do. Yeah. But, but I mean, but, but this always has to be a question in a utopia. Right, right. Is, right. is what happens, like, is there such a thing as crime? Right. Um, and if you don't think that there's such a thing as crime, and this goes along with a bunch of questions about like, is there such a thing as law too? Um, but if there's not, what happens when people engage in um, uh, certain forms of extreme behavior that are dangerous to the community as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think that, you know, that... Um, uh, that it's exactly the, I mean, those are, you know, there's a, it's weird to say this, but that's like, that is a utopian question to ask. Right. You decide that like prison is not just the default. Um, uh, then you open up, you open up this kind of um, like a space that you have to think in and which you have to ask these extremely difficult questions that include like, well, do you think that there would not be any behavior of that kind? Right. Right. I mean, so feminist utopias almost, almost always, at least sort of classic feminist utopias almost always have to address the question of rape, of course. Right. Um, And that question matters, not just um, uh, as a, as a question about, you know, um, sexual violence itself, but, but as, you know, like the degree to which, um, that sort of assertion of violent power is kind of like foundational to this, to the state and to civilization, perhaps generally. Right. Um, and yeah, so I think here, you know, we both get, I mean, I think that the first starship of prison is like, um, uh, you know, I don't know, like, I mean, in Aurora, we could, ask that question (laughs) can you extrapolate i know could you extrapolate from this into aurora and be like oh maybe these were prison ships yeah um and then the generations were so long that they forgot or they suppressed the knowledge that they were prisoners or something like that i mean you know and i mean and even if we don't think that right at some point ship is like i'm the sheriff yeah and you know yeah, I don't know. I mean, so I think, I mean, I don't, I don't, th- I mean, I also don't think that this is a utopia, but I right. think that this is a book that has like utopian impulse all over the, all over the place. Well, I'm problematizes. Yeah. It's a utopian problems, right? Cause it yeah, goes right, exactly. exactly as you say, it opens space for thinking about all these different things. Yeah. Which I kind of, which I think is, I mean, that is what utopias do, right? Sure. Is that they, they make you ask 
the question, right? They don't necessarily tell you the answer to like right. how you want to live, but they make you ask a really hard right. question. And I think what you were just saying about like the way in which, you know, I mean, kind of, I, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's not clear, you know, Jeanette and whatever, you know, agency Jeanette represents, um, uh, this is a fait accompli. It's not, it yeah. doesn't seem like Waram could do anything about it. On the other hand, like, you know, Waram's response is just to kind of be like, oh, okay, well, move on to diplomacy then, yeah. you know? Um, exile, the first starship a, a prison. Well, there were prison terraria in the asteroid belt, locked from the outside and with conditions inside ranging from utopia to hell. Also sounds very bad. I mean, the hell part. Also like not, again, very different kind of exile, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Lawn Bowlers group and its creations could make what they wanted, supposedly. It still st struck him as a version of hell. When all was said and done, little Inspector Jeanette could be quite as inhuman as the Lawn Bowler. Sanguine, blithe, impenetrable, regarding Waram now with a look that was the same for all. Saint, criminal, stranger, brother, all of them regarded with the same bird-like gaze, frankly evaluative, interested, willing to be convinced. That's so, it, it has such a, you know, again, like haunting kind of willing to be convinced. Oh, tell me your story. You know, yeah. Yeah. I'll make, I'll make of it what I will. Yeah. Um, but you tell me, and I'm willing to be convinced, you know, when, when it seems like possibly, you know, the mind is made up uh, long before um, the convincing starts. I mean, and then, and then we get just to sort of further that. Um, so Waram's uneasiness leads him to do some more exploration. And he's like, there was somebody who was setting cubes free. Right. So we actually get the explanation for why we've been seeing them in this, in the quantum walks and what the sort of like network is, um, that they were being tapped into. Um, uh, and then we get this kind of interesting, um, Moram rolls his wheelchair into a meeting of the interplan, right? Interplan investigators. Uh, and again, made the case for these innocents caught up with the rest of their captives. In the end, it was not unanimous, but a strong majority agreed. All the cubanoids were to go into exile. The lab assistant who had been setting the defectives loose would not. It turned out that this lab assistant had not only let them go, but also erased them from the lab's records and quite a clever bit of work, Jeanette informed Waram, as if it were the cleverness that justified the pardon. Uh, Waram, still deeply unsatisfied, let the matter drop. The Venusian lab assistant, a young person scarcely older than the lawn bowler, would be free to go. And the poor defective cubes might be better off among their own kind. I mean, and at this point, also the idea of them as defectives, I mean, there's a like you know, takes on like a creepy eugenic quality here. But that moment of like Jeanette sort of sounding like, um, well, the lab assistant was pretty clever actually. So maybe it's okay if he goes. Yeah. Like that's another just like. Tip of the cat. Oh, that's another great trope of like the cop and the robber chasing each other, mutual yeah. respect. Yeah, <laughs> the exactly. The cop and the criminal. Exactly. Let them go also, in the end. like, don't, let's not forget that some of the cubes worked their way into like the Martian legislature. Yeah. So it's like, how defective were they? And how defective are your legislators? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I how mean, difficult would it be for a cube to pass as like Marjorie Taylor Greene, though? I mean, it's not. <laughs> I don't 
don't know. I feel like that might be the hardest of all for a cube. She, to yeah, just like, I mean, that like extraordinary degree of irrationality. <laughs> a cube, a cube would not be would not be able to attain Marjorie Taylor Greene status. <laughs> More like my Congressman Jared Golden. I could imagine that he's an artificial, <laughs> a Cuban I mean, as they a Cuban as they call them. You know, they. I mean, what they could let have them do is write New York Times crossword puzzles. Good God, yeah, they'd be good at that. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, yeah. I think the, uh, yeah, the lawn bowler never even gets a name. He never gets a name. No, that's pretty crazy. No. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it just, uh, this, this sense that here, um, you know, that, that there are enough people assembled here who are just comfortable with drawing this line that says like, this is a human person. This is not. Um, Despite actually rather extraordinary evidence that the line is quite blurry, you know, fungible. (laughs) Fungible. (laughs) Um, Yeah, for sure. And, and that, well then, and that even where Ram, you know, again, that even where Ram, who accepts Pauline's personhood, um, is comfortable to just—I mean, obviously, there's nothing he can do. Um, he's a good diplomatic subject, um, where you know he can't—you can't fight City Hall, I guess. They've made up their like the whole, yeah, yeah, all the way from Pluto to the Mondragon have made up their minds um, that exile is the way to go, um, and yet. And then, yeah, but in all of the, what we've talked about this whole season and throughout many of the books is the the concept of love as a paying of attention and also like that love can be extended to non-human others and that there are, you know, you have, we, they have here mm-hmm. love of our horizontal brothers and sisters, the animals, but that can't be considered a factor right. in, in relation to the cubes whose agency is not even a question, let alone known, right? Like, yeah, they did all this, but they were, again, they were programmed to do it. So how do you, I mean, there, you know, how do you justify just sending them off into the coldness of space without sort of, yeah. um, Understanding again, the underlying conditions or whatever. I mean, we, that chapter ends with, um, uh, 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 Jeanette saying possibly there are one or two still out there, but we're thinking there'll be too few to do any harm. I mean, this is also actually just to say Frankenstein again. Um, in Frankenstein, the the reason that um, Victor refuses the creature's request to to make him a, a mate, to make him a woman creature, which obviously is a complicated request in a variety of ways, but um, Victor is all set to do it because the creature is like, oh, I'm going to, you know, if you do this for me, I, I, and my, my mate will go live in South America. That's where they're mm-hmm. going to go live. And we will be vegetarians. And uh, as if like meat eating was the the issue, uh, and just, you won't need to worry. I'll leave you alone. I'm just asking if you will not be my companion, I'm asking that you make me a companion. And Victor, for some reason, goes to the Orkney Islands to do this obvious, obvious place that a Swiss person would go. Um, and uh, he's got all the like body parts and he's working on it. And then he thinks to himself, 
oh my God, but if I make a lady creature, they're going to make baby creatures and they're going to populate the world with a race of devils. He has this like crazy Malthusian thought, which, you know, you don't have to like, it doesn't take that much to think it would have been really easy for him to make the lady creature so that uh, she could not um, bear baby creatures. Right. Um, Just as one might think he could have made the creature creature, uh, you know, so that he could not, um, participate in so-called biological reproduction. But in any case, and then he rips the lady creature apart, right? Right. But similarly here, you know, um, and we get this sort of like, well, the, there there may be more of them, but there probably are not that many of them out there. And therefore it doesn't matter, right? Because what would matter, like there's this sort of sense of them as like this kind of like, they become a threat because they are, they are in numbers, Yes. Which is, again, it, since we don't really have evidence that they plotted with each other, right. it seems weird. And then meaning will Ram thought that right now, somewhere in the system, there could be machines in human form escaped into the crowd doing their best to stay free, perhaps when a, any x-ray machine or other surveillance device would reveal what they were out there hiding, trying to accomplish the goals they had been given, perhaps, or new ones they might choose for themselves according to some self-invented algorithm of survival damaged, dangerous, detached from any other consciousness, solitary and afraid, in other words, just like everyone else. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, so again, right, you know, the picture, you know, we're social primates who will leap off the ship holding hands. We are creatures who can't get beyond our own skin and damn, right, you know, like, both are obviously like overly um, convenient stories or, you know, the truth might lie in some kind of relation of those two things, but either in either case from there, we get to the last quantum walk section in which it's for once it's clear to us what's going on, which is that Swan is um, rescuing um, a cube with, with Zasha's help. And, and we get a little Swan Zasha reconciliation too. Mm -hmm. I was going to say too, going back to Jeanette really momentarily is like his declaration that he too is an exile just allows him to justify this heinous punishment, even though like they, they share a name of exile, but they're yeah. really radically different. Cause Je- I mean, Jeanette is exiled from Mars, but he has the entire rest of the solar system to jet around in and like yeah, supreme freedom within that, like he can go anywhere, yes. do anything, talk to anybody. Um, Anyway, so that's just that kind of like cognitive dissonance, I guess, or um, whatever. Yeah. yeah One yeah, of yeah. those cognitive dissonances that Stan is wont to list. Um, yeah, this is a really, and the Quantum Walk chapter, Quantum Walk 3 is a is really a beautiful one. And it has, and it's, I like, I like Zasha tells Swan, I found a chess player. You know, it's this like little code. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the surfeit of detail that the, the cube, um, the Cuban recognizes and kind of clocks, um, while trying to navigate the human world, it's pretty clear that Swan's relationship to Pauline is what allows her to, you know, relate to the cubes in the way that she does versus, how almost everyone else relates to their 
cube cubicle appendages or whatever. Um, but also, and that also like, as, as Waram points out, I think in the Swan chapter that, you know, Pauline, Swan programmed Pauline, but, and Pauline, which makes Pauline kind of a work of art as right. well, so right. that it is a kind of much more personal. Mm -hmm. And so it, so like that, that line between science and art or technology and art is, is blurred in a very personal way for Swan that it's not for like other cube users. And it, and it feels like that we also see that in the quantum walks where the, I think we talked about this before, but where the, the consciousness that we see, which is associative and it's, you know, at moments like, you know, this, we see this kind of like uh, calculation of surroundings, the ability to collect data very quickly. But then mostly what we see are these kind of, are really sort of like poetic logics, yeah, right? I was yeah. gonna say it's a very po they're they're poetically contrived chapters. I mean, yeah. which the way they read are, you know, poetically, I mean, like um haiku-esque um listings of details of nature, right? Uh, yeah. rendered yeah. very, very beautifully, where even the the cube um you know, asks itself questions, were Persian carpets ever green? Um, do, and like, do the people, you know, see this stuff? Do they see what I see? Do they recognize um, what I recognize in terms of the different shades of color and that kind of thing? And, and this one repeatedly in this chapter repeatedly thinks about bird. I think we've, they birds. all think about birds, right? Or maybe so, this yeah. is still the same cube that we've seen before, but um, repeatedly thinks about birds and then keeps thinking hope is the thing with feathers. And so, you know, that, so whatever, someone's programmed like poetry into the, into the cube, but the cube is making all kinds of connections mm -hmm. between um, birds the observation of birds, um, the behavior of birds, the possibility that people are like birds, the possibility that hope is like a bird, right? I mean, at all of these different kinds of levels of abstraction, which seems, you know, um, it seems definitely to push back on the idea that that this that clearly what's clearly what we're seeing is something that is tightly algorithmically programmed, unless right. you know unless we are too, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, especially because when set free, the cubes just kind of wander around until they bump into another person and then right, they either right. ask for help directly or are like, uh, you know, immediately like locked up or something. If we want to move to Waram and his meeting with the Titan Planetary Relations Council about, you know, recalibrating the Saturn system's relationship to Mars, to the Mondragon, to Mercury, to the rest of the solar system, primarily because Earth is just a lost, again, like a kind of a lost cause. They have to figure out their own shit. No one can say how Earth will go. Meanwhile, we have to restore some kind of relationship with our own patron, with our old patron Mars. And um, setting up a new, as a, like, 
as they as he says a triangular trade nitrogen from titan to mars reconstruction and development assistance from mars to mercury heavy metals and rare earths from mercury to saturn um and that this will be enormously like profitable for titan and for the saturn system um brings it right back down to kind of you know, nuts and bolts uh, and like the bottom line, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, where, which hadn't really been, again, like a central concern of the novel. It's been in the background, but it's been an open question for us too, of like, how does capital flow here? How is it put in motion? How does profit work um, in a world where everyone's needs basic material needs are met right um and yet there are still hierarchies of power um there are still mysterious forces there is not like full democratic transparency on any of this stuff no no um so it's just a real and then you know that one of the one of his interlocutors challenges him you know he says uh the reanimation on earth has produced such remarkable effects already like what he was challenged and he like lists this whole thing and then the the response is there hasn't been anywhere near enough time to make those conclusions the animal invasion is often described as a horrid botch that created a host of nightmare problems and waram just says wrongly so and so it's like there is still this like within this world there's still massive disagreement about I mean, obviously, because that's part of the theme too, of like it's 2312 and not, you know, the events of 2312 were not the events of 2312. They're like right, the precursors right. to things that would resolve mm -hmm. themselves many decades later. And that we, and there's the beautiful extracts chapter, which is really, we should like take yeah. a look at that as well. Um, but that there's still all these like power dynamics underneath the plot that we've been following that um, subtend it but um, that are, you know, remain mysterious for us. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I think that, so that becomes interesting in that, in relation to uh, what we were talking about a little bit ago, which is that not only does Lakshmi not get punished, um, but in the end, her position wins out. Right. Um, a position which seems to have been based on at least something like the profit motive, right? Um, her position wins out and they're going to do something like crazily destructive to get Venus to have a hundred hour um, day, right? They're going to do that and they've arrived. And because of the kind of terroristic threat that she initiated, that decision is a right is eventually arrived at democratically. Like right. they have a vote on Venus and everybody votes to spin up the planet so they won't have to rely on the sun shield, which would have been fine had it not been the subject of a terrorist attack by cube. Right. So it's, yeah. Right. And I mean, and there, I think, you know, that at the very least should make us feel like pretty suspicious of the idea that that is, you know, I mean, if that's what democracy is, then, you know. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, I was I was just thinking that the kind of um, uh, 
I, you know, there's also a way in which like, okay, the story of the diplomat, I mean, and so well, Ram is so appealing. And again, this chapter, you know, begins with another reflection on the pseudo iterative and the desire for experience um, and the way in, in which experience always comes, even when, even when things seem repetitive, there's always experience, there's always something that is unexpected and thus always something new. Um, uh, and, you know, so, uh, uh, but but Waram has also been a, a diplomat the whole time. Um, and this becomes another thing that we sort of don't notice, maybe because maybe because like a novel about diplomats, like a novel about spies also keeps us from noticing like um, uh, conveniently from noticing the sort of like larger <laughs> the larger structures that are behind them. Um, but but you know, it's not, um, I think it, there is an irony to the um, uh, everybody on the committee at the end saying, uh, congratulations to the idea of the marriage. That will make it all easier. You'll make something like a Saturn Mercury standing committee, which, you know, and, and there we just like get the sort of just the blunt exposure of the idea of marriage as the reconciliation between larger political forces. Yeah. And of course, we don't quite buy this. We think that they don't really know what's going on. That's not really what the story is. But here we're very much on the terrain of like, well, what really is the story? Is this really the story? Uh, I mean, just like, you know, is this really the story of a bunch of essentially, um, you know, self-satisfied elites who can play in space and play, you know, with their identities and forms of living precisely because they're elites, right? Is this a story, like if we take the Mondragon seriously, then we should be seeing something that has a, you know, um, is not about rule by elites, but rather, you know, like this larger cooperative endeavor. Um, is this all, has this been like a trade, basically like a trade war story the whole time? Is that actually what it is? Um, is it actually a story about, you know, um, uh, right? Is it actually a story about the way in which um, domination and sort of like um, the forms of punishment that we associate with the state persist even when there is no state, right? I mean, uh, and here we really don't, you just like all of these other kind of possibilities have opened up here um at the end you know which include the possibility that we've been distracted by stuff but then also it's like the stuff that we were distracted by that is so full of the promise of difference and possibility and you know um and, and expanded and enriched human living right yeah and like like we were saying at the very beginning of the episode that the resolution actually yeah it makes it it, it does it's it it's not even a closing it's a complete opening up in retrospect of the previous novel like what as you said what have we what have we been reading and like waram's yes at the end of that pair at the end of that chapter you'll make something like a saturn mercury stand a um, saturn mercury standing committee yes waram said like that's also kind of like haunting because is marriage just between two people or is it a pride and prejudice style joining of two like families or fortunes or whatever it's like yeah of course it is of course a marriage is that no matter what you know no matter what two people are getting married 
your friends are like marrying each other. Your families are marrying each other. You're creating like, you know, new connections and a new thing in the world. And when you have Waram and Swan, these powerful people, of course, you're, of course, that's a, got a political component to it. Right. I mean, and, you know, the Austin, you know, the Austin yeah. comparison makes even more sense because, you know, that one way to understand how those plots work is a reconciliation between like emergent bourgeois values and not aristocratic generally, but the sort of like values of the landed gentry right. presumed to be in conflict with one another, but it turns out they can, I mean, and this, you know, whatever the plot of like, you know, Victorian novel after Victorian novel can be, you know, read as that form of that form of resolution and a little bit, right? Swan is the aristocrat, yeah, right? Um, she is part of the sort of favored family of Mercury. She is the person who, although in fact, she's actually worked quite hard and done a great deal in her life, has a sort of dilettantish, mm-hmm. indulged <laughs> quality to her. And she's the one who gets to go lawn bowling and on picnics yeah. <laughs> on asteroids. Waram and, is know, busting his hump going back and forth between right, Mercury, Saturn, Earth. Right, exactly. And, you know, he come, you know, grew up in a crash, you know, just yeah. like everybody else. <laughs> Has has you know six six partners and however many children and um, et cetera et cetera. So I mean you know I think that this is quite like it's quite playful, but I do think it takes. I mean like early on when we were talking about the book, you know you were like, well, what if this is just what if this is allegory, you know? And this is this kind of like you know the spacers are this are um, you know the the capitalists, right. and I you know I I still don't think that that works out, but I think that like um, uh, knowing how to place ourselves in relation to uh, the kind of varying strains of the story is quite difficult, you know, I mean, and it may really be that the answer is just that none of those are totally satisfactory ways of talking, talking about this, but right, 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 right. I did want to say before we get to the extracts chapter in the Swan chapter, there's a couple of things: the triune mind, and then what's good is what's good for the land. Oh yeah, yeah, is mentioned there. And that's mentioned right after some song lyrics. Um, oh, I miss you, Hetty Moore. Mm-hmm. I looked this up. There's the a Bob, Bob Dylan song. Bob Dylan song. It's a Bob Dylan song, but it's Nettie Moore, not Hetty Moore. Moore. Yeah, it's from modern times. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I wondered if that was just a typo. Stan if, Miller, Swan, if Swan doesn't remember it right. But see, that's what I was thinking too, is that Swan doesn't remember it right um, or she's misheard it or it got covered uh, and there was somebody <laughs> named Hetty Moore that they like re, re-recorded yeah. the song okay. after in the, in the 300 years between the release of Modern Times and 2312. Oh, yeah. So and then at the end of that chapter, the Swan chapter, when Waram comes and finds Swan and they're talking about Pauline. um, Pauline's a projection of you. No, she's not. Okay, fine. (laughs) Um, But she's like a work of art. Well, Pauline is not art. I'm not so sure. Maybe she's something like a ventriloquist dummy. Isn't that art? Some device we speak through. So I am very encouraged. I just like the (laughs) 
epitome of art is a ventriloquist. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Greatest artist of our time, Charlie McCarthy and uh, <laughs> Mortimer Snurd and the guy who would, did their voices. Yeah. Victor Bergen. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. I, I think that's right. Um, yeah, so the, our final extracts um, feels like uh, we are, I mean, some of the extract sections, it's like, okay, here's somebody who's writing a, this is an essay on recent history. These are extracts from, uh, you know, articles in like a medical journal, uh, whatever we, but this one, this one, I feel like it's, it's harder to sort of pin kind of uh, pin down generically, like um, what these are extracts from, or are, are they all extracts from the same thing, particularly because we begin with the bit that you um, already uh, referred to the, this great kind of thinking about um, uh, uh, the way in which um, to form a sentence is to collapse many superposed wave functions to a single thought universe. Um, each thought condenses trillions of potential thoughts. Thus we get verbal overshadowing where the language we use structures the reality we inhabit. Maybe this is a blessing. Maybe this is why we keep, need to keep making sentences. Um, and then this kind of great reflection on um, writing things down uh, as producing a kind of time a time capsule possibly read by people on other side, opposite sides of a great divide. Um, you might live for centuries, this text, one tiny part of your education, a glimpse at how it used to be a little insight into how your world got to be the way it is. Your author, however, remains stuck in the tail of the balkanization, desperate with hope for the beginning of whatever comes next. It is a very limited view, which is like an amazing, I mean, I think this is a particularly pleasurable moment because, um, you know, is is this our author of this extract telling, um, uh, speaking to the future, or is this our author um, function who wrote twenty three twelve um, uh, writing from inside the balkanization? Right. I mean, it's just it's such a good invocation of you know being stuck inside the the little, the empirical valley and knowing, right, that there is a way to see something outside of it, um, but but just continually kind of faced with the limits of your own view, right? Like wanting to find that horizon, wanting to have something else, um, wanting, for, hoping for the beginning of whatever comes next. Um, yeah. I think it's a perfect example of a collapsing of wave functions into because <laughs> it's all those things at once yeah, right yeah. obviously um and it's also i i was getting ready to teach in january i'm like i should give these two paragraphs to my students and as an explanation for why they have to write papers <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep making sentences because you know you just do that's just what we do yeah um, yeah yeah <laughs> Because we have to yeah. figure out where we're at, and the way we do that is by by making sentences. Um, yeah, it's extremely poignant and beautifully written. Um, and then a meditation on action and decision. No one decides. No, we decide. How we decide is an interesting question. But even if we don't know the answer to it, we decide. 
Um, and then of course the kind of, the kind of, you know, obviously like kind of ironic undoing that we've seen throughout again, and we've been talking about over and over again, you know, 2312 wasn't 2312. It didn't, nothing happened except for everything happened or it mm -hmm. set up the thing for what would happen later. Um, there was no portal they passed through saying, this is a new period. This is a new age. Events were set in train. Um, none of this, none of the outcome was clear to us. Then things could have shifted into quite different channels. Um, and then of course, like the story. And so, yeah, it feels to me like just to kind of go back to a question that you asked, like, who is the author who is writing here? I feel like I'm reading it almost as if it's like an afterword to, um, a, a, a revised edition of a canonical historical work, like re-released <laughs> after 50 years when they've learned even more about the events that the first historical work depicted or whatever, um, just as a note on the reflections of a kind of older scholar who's older than the book that he wrote, you know, older than older now than he was when he wrote the book originally and has had time to reflect on like what history and life and all this kind of stuff mean and how they inflect how you tell stories. I think that the, um, uh, the, I, this part, of course, the disparities between individual and planetary time can never be reconciled. What is to be then in quotes, what is to be noted here is less the unification of these disparate temporalities than rather than rather their surcharge and overlap. It's the surcharge and overlap that create the feel of any given time. Out of this jumbled superimposition of different kinds of temporal models, history does in fact emerge, end of the quote, then as a work of art, like any work of art, but made by everyone together, um, which I think is a really like wonderful way of um, uh, saying what, his what history, what, uh, what history is. But I think that that kind of the move from that opening of this section, the disparities between individual and planetary time, then into these kinds of questions about about history. I, I don't have like a, a sort of um, I don't have a line on this, but I think that that's an interesting move. Right. Because um, uh, and it and it speaks also then to the kinds of um questions that we were just asking about what kind of story is it and is there supposed to be a big story behind the behind the little story or um do the stories of the individuals in some ways um disguise or allegorize or um you know ideologize um uh something behind them right um uh, as well as these kinds of questions about like who is to blame and for what the questions right. about cause all of that then comes out here as a sort of problem about history and making history um, um, played out like in a really different, you know, um, if, if there is something so, um, and it doesn't stop things happen, events, accomplishments, wins and losses, Pyrrhic victories, rearguard actions. And uh, though there can be crucial events, the plot does not end in a year like 2312, but rather several decades later, if that, if um, that. And, then we get, and then we begin to actually get some specifics from there. We get some specifics about things that are happening in the solar system. Um, we get some specifics of, um, uh, we get some specifics that take us back to earth, right? But you know, as you were just saying, like 
we remain totally uncertain about like whether we're reading a representative year, whether we're reading a story of a bunch of stuff that was consequent, whether we're not reading that sort of story, you know, um, uh, uh, at all, whether we are reading something that, you know, wants to make a case for resolution. Um, people get married, differences are reconciled, life goes on, you know. Um, do you think those quotes, I mean, are those, is that Jameson or is it uh, I try. I tried googling them because I was thinking, "Is that Jameson?" Um, I I only came. I googled them too. I only came up with twenty three twelve. Yeah, I couldn't find. I couldn't find anything either. So that'd be interesting. Anyway, that's a side question. Yeah. But but um. So the and the but the temporal perspective of this, you know, so we get this reflection on what happened with the Mondragon card on on Venus on Earth. On Mars, it became clear that a small working group within the official government had been infiltrated and influenced by a cadre of cubed simulacra who were summarily kidnapped and sent into exile, after which a profound reconsideration of their governance brought them closer to their democratic system as described and re-entry into the Mondragon Accord followed. So the use of the word kidnap there is interesting in relation to our whole previous discussion about the nature of this exile punishment, right? Um, you wouldn't describe uh, a kidnapping and that like you would describe they were, uh, you know, incarcerated, they were like arrested, incarcerated, right. Right. and then exiled. Here, the author of this, you know, whatever this text is that is extracted from is using this very like loaded word of of kidnapped. So there's a, it, it intimates a kind of difference of opinion among the historians about the actions of 2312. Right, right, right. I mean, you kidnap somebody to bring them to a black site, not, yeah, um, right. Exactly. Um, so it could still be the state. It's sure. just operating in a different mode. Um, also interesting, this is on the second to last paragraph of the chapter. Um, with majorities on Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, Titan, Triton, and even Luna declaring the attention to fully terraform their worlds, excuse me, all volatiles and nitrogen in particular became much more expensive. Inflation struck the entire system at once. And by the end of the 24th century, the Saturn League had amassed a titanic fortune. Um, but uh, um, so something that I think is an interesting thing that happens toward the end of the book is um, we get this like leap in also this leap into terraforming, right? So earth in some ways is terraformed um, which is a different thing than um, Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, Titan, etc., terraforming, um, because on Earth this is a process of like you know something like a repetition or an ongoing something that has been going on as long as humans have been on Earth, right? Um, uh, but the idea that everybody's leaping, I mean, since, just since we have that reference to planetary time, right? Individual time versus planetary time. I take it planetary time could mean historical time, but also sounds like it might mean something more like geological time, right? Um, you know, um, and then uh, everybody, like this just huge, like solar systemic, like leap into like, we all want to terraform. Right. This is what we're going to do now. Um, and we, our glimpse of that from Venus in in it is as um, you know, just this violent upheaval that also requires an enormous amount of labor, right. right? And we get earlier in this section a bit that we didn't talk about. We get the idea that like even if um, 
you know, if people die in the process or refuse to work, they can easily be replaced because there's so many people on earth. So there just is this enormous kind of like reserve army, right? Right. So the vision of like the sudden leap into terraforming is also kind of a troubling one as well, which in some ways then in the, we don't need to get there next, but the beginning of the next chapter, which is the epilogue, when we see Mars, we see Mars as like, um, it's like earth, but more earthy than earth, but more, more earth-like than earth, right? It's like yeah, yeah. almost like a kind of like cartoon of, of earth, right? Right. Um, I don't know. So there's some, there's something interesting there and just thinking about where the sort of, you know, where in this novel um, climate crisis is, right? And, and we talked about that in the way in which, you know, earth becomes the set, earth is the sad planet um, and the bearer of all, of human activity, the bearer of human activity that can't be gotten rid of. Um, mm-hmm. But here we see like the the whole world of the novel leaping into terraforming. Anyway, just like that just interested me. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I think it like is, yeah, the reflection on Venus as kind of our image of what terraforming looks like at this moment is really scary in if you extrapolate that to the other to the other worlds and because and exactly for that reason too that like as waram and Jeanette were talking about like well what was the plan here like i mean they would have killed everybody or maybe it was kieran and swan like what was the plan there they're going to kill everybody on venus oh yeah but like china could like completely repopulate venus without even noticing it like they would love to like send up 40 million people to to venus you know uh to repopulate venus and it's like so you know what is the what is the value of life here then uh which is the last word of the novel by the way which we'll get to because is the point that we want to spread life around everywhere it can go and use technology to do that like this human technology hybrid that Pauline and Swan represent, like embody, literally embody that all of our, that there is no distinct, like nature is this myth that we create because in fact, what we are is part of nature that uses that kind of, and humans and technology are sort of one in the same in a way. And so that the goal would be to spread life wherever we can um, using our technology to do so, whether that's the technology of fire or the technology of bringing nitrogen from Titan all the way to Mars, right? But at what expense is because in order to do that, you have to sacrifice millions of lives in order to do that and like force them into like toil that is not, um, you know, compensatory in a kind of soulful way or whatever. Like these are not, you know, Kieran did not, was not hired by Lakshmi on Venus to be an artist, or to express himself or like to find out exactly how human he could be to become more of himself than he ever was. He was hired to drive a big giant, like building sized tractor that moved snow around or like dry ice around the surface, you know? Um, So that is, yeah, heavily problematic. Like what is the point of all of this? Right. 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 Yeah. Um, I mean, but, Oh, go ahead. No, 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 go. I was just going to say then that this chapter, the extracts chapter ends on this very like philosophical reflection on um, 
the events continued to occur against the most intense resistance of time, material, and human recalcitrance. Human fear, in fact, seizing with a desperate grip various imagined props out of the past that were somehow felt to hold the world together, um, whether those are ideas or, again, technologies or whatever. Because of this, there is still and always the risk of utter failure and mad gibbering extinction. There is no alternative to continuing to struggle. So I, that's an interesting variation on the there is no alternative uh, phrase. Um, but it also feels like, I don't know, like a resignation to how you're just, we're always going to have to struggle against whatever it be, whether it's capital or just raw power dynamics or our own internal egos or whatever. I mean, I think that the, to, I, I feel like that is a, uh, yeah, I was thinking about this too. I, I think that this is more this, there is no alternative to continuing to struggle, you know, um, I, I think, so, I, I mean, obviously like in some ways it's hard to place, but I think that like in the, in the logic of this extract section, and then also in relation to our own world, this is a historical, not about sort of like eternal struggle, but this is a kind of like lose, 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 win moment, except that we right. don't get the win, right? We right. just get the, um, you know, because this is, I mean, so if the, if the marriage chapter, which comes next, is the epilogue and it, it is the epilogue, then this is the end of the novel, right? And that kind of, um, and then I think, you know, we have to think about it. I mean, then I think this attaches to what you were saying about, uh, um, uh, we have to think about where in, the, where in this novel we see struggle, right? And we see it on earth and we see it in the attempt of the cubes to survive and we see it um, in, you know, um, the joyous and also complicated return of the animals. And we see it on Venus. Um, although, you know, we get some funny things on Venus, right? Like when Kieran is making his escape and he's able to just like take these snowmobiles and go from one place to another. It's such a good, I yeah, just, we skip, we, we skip that, that whole chapter, but like, yeah, that's, that was my main takeaway from that too, is like, he can just take these snowmobiles he can and take nobody... them because they, because they aren't, because they're not private property. And yeah. this is the weird, you know, like, it's really easy, I think in this book to get tricked into thinking, but there must be ownership somewhere. But, but here, I mean, I think your point is like, well, there doesn't seem to be ownership, um, but nonetheless, there are still like, um, you know, uh, there are still power struggles and there's still domination and that, right. I mean, and then on earth, there is still ownership also. Right. And so like the very unevenness, the very unevenness of things is what allows for um, domination to continue. Right. Which is also what allows for like certain kinds of lives to be disposable, but that, you know, I don't know. So I think it's interesting to end, you know, the book, like the book proper ends on this, what I think is a very, like, is a very KSR note of right. like, you know, it, the fix is not in. Right. And it is, and um, we make history under conditions that are not of our own choosing, but we make history. And how right. do we make history? We make it through struggle. And here that struggle, like, um, you know, uh, we, yeah, we like have to think about where the struggle is, you know, if we see it here, where is it? Or if it's invisible to us here, why is it? 
And right. one of the reasons it seems to be invisible is a little bit because like we keep looking in the wrong place. So we keep looking for like what the magical thing is going to be that happens in 2312. And I do think there is a case that the return of the animals, which I think that, you know, like when we were talking about that chapter, I think can be read as, as direct action mm-hmm. um, and, and thus can be read, I think as a moment in, as a moment in a struggle. Right. right. Um, um, but, but still, still like we, you know, like, we're just like, we look in, in the wrong places all the time because we want event, you know, and, um, and we don't get the thing that we get in the Mars books, which is in the Mars books, we get these same kinds of problems, right. About like, how do you make history? But we actually get revolution and revolution isn't what we expected it to be. And it doesn't work and is not controllable. And, you know, we have this picture you know, and there we have to, you know, we have to recognize this, like, really, like, th- these are these, this is a kind of radical contingency out of which so many different things could happen. But we do yeah. get revolutions there. And here, like, we have this, like, you know, it, I mean, except for the animals, it's hard to believe that there is that kind of moment that we could name as a moment. And th- yeah. therefore, we could know why does 20 through 12 matter. I just thought, too, of interesting things in these moments of revolution, right? They're all, they're all, they are, you know, you know, far from like resolving contradictions, they like heighten contradictions and make them explode and even, you know, and and make them more visible or something without resolving them at all. Cause I was thinking about that when, when you were talking about when you brought up the animals, cause um, the two things that happen in the book are like, the return of the animals and the consciousness of the cubes. But right, of course, exactly, like yeah. the cubes were, or were they not important in bringing the animals back to earth as well? Like they needed like to use computers and like right, all right. this kind of like high, you know, a lot of like artificial intelligence planning. computing <laughs> planning to do this. And so like those, so, you know, you have the return of the animals, but then you have the exile of the cubes. Yeah. So you have that contradiction there that um, is, as you were saying, like you're looking, you're always looking in the wrong place or you want the event or whatever. And there's two events there that seem sort of interlinked, but the human population of the novel like responds in radically different ways to them. And um, that's all just to say that everything is like contingently interwoven with each other and um whatever like and also like subject to the forces of not just history but like historiography like how do you tell yeah, right, this right, story right. i mean uh, it's based a, on the facts at hand yeah it's interesting to think too about whether the sort of the idea of like a kind of general terraforming um you know it's impossible not to think about terraforming in relation to, in relation to the mars books where i think that is just both thought through and depicted for us with like incredible specificity and including why it would be a site of struggle. But, but if we just kind of take terraforming more generally here, I I was just thinking about, okay, so, you know, of we've, we've talked a bunch about like the various, um, 
you know, like generic modes or impulses or genres that are in this novel. And we haven't talked for a while about it also as the planetary romance, right? As just the the traveling from place to place. And maybe in one place you get involved, maybe actually, maybe you do get involved in solving some kind of mystery, but the mystery is mainly about propelling you to the next place. And part of, you know, part of that, um, at least in the planet jumping version of the planetary romance, part of its appeal is going from distinctive place to distinctive place and seeing this kind of unfolding and coming to understand um, how it is that the conditions of a given place have produced these kind of like unique and weird and fascinating like life ways, um, uh, which we get a lot of here, right? Um, But it's interesting to think that then that terraforming might really be a flattening out of all of the kind of uniqueness. So if the uniqueness on the one hand, like, I mean, maybe that does tend to this balkanization, balkanization in which like, you know, it, we're, and then we have, that's the problem of like the utopia of, uto- of utopias right. or whatever. Um, but on the other side of that, what we have is like the possibility actually of a sort of like loss of specificity, right? Of a kind of like generalization of like, um, uh, earth, earth likeness, um, none of which bears with it. Of course, like terraforming can't bear with it all of the stuff that makes earth, earth in its deepest and most complicated ways, including the historical stuff. Right. But I just, you know, I was just thinking like, yeah, you know, you would lose, you would lose the sort of, um, I mean, it might be that like partly the, um, really interesting if extremely low-key social world that exists um where waram comes from on on uh titan um is there partly because it's not terraformed right and because it it is this like you know environment you know they have they've made an environment there to live in but it's an it's a niche right Mm -hmm. it's and they you know like their way of life um is a way of life that has this particular niche right Mm -hmm. anyway just you know just think yeah no i mean the mart like this this next chapter when they're on mars um sort of reminds me or i was you know it what you were saying like harkens to this chapter i think because of how regular everything is on mars like how laid out and how sort of perfect and beautiful it is which is like a cool vision, but also it just makes it feel like not natural, like much more like a park, like a park that we think of as a park, not like the park that the earth always already is as inhabited by humans, because we've been terraforming it since we evolved to, you know, do that kind of stuff. And it's, and that's kind of um, brought home, like right at the beginning where, um, the canals are being described. I mean, we're finally back on Mars, right? We haven't even been to Mars this whole book. And it's finally at the very end where we arrive on Mars and, uh, the, the, the terrain is being, um, described and that the, it was basically decided that the canals f- from, you know, um, that guy's map, Right. <laughs> the Lowell maps, the Lowell maps of the late 19th century would be used as inspiration to build these canals to kind of like organize the creation of Mars. So thus a 19th century fantasy forms the basis for the actual landscape currently existing. And this is a little bit the inverse of the final cha- paragraph of the previous chapter where 
human fear seizing with a desperate grip, various imagined props out of the past that were somehow felt to hold the world together, um, you know, produce, help us to produce our present moment or whatever. So it's, it's, if not the inverse, then it's an example of that, right. Of, of, um, of not just like letting history determine the present, but actively seeking out a historical, even though erroneous, um, understanding of what history was in order to shape the present and, and, and model something out off of it, which is, I don't know, that's a little troubling to me too, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Like a fantasy version of history that you're going to like model your entire planet after, it sounds a little fascisty to me. I don't know. Well, I mean, and we get you know, just to like amplify that the sky was a Maxfield Parish blue. I mean, obviously real nice color, but, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, um, the hyper Terran, uh, look combined with the mercury light gravity created a dreamscape feel mercury would never look like this nowhere else, nowhere else could look like this, but also it, it does, we are in the space of something that is a little theme parky, right? A oh. hi, it's hyper Terran. And yeah. I think that that is reinforced with, um, they passed white plazas under palm trees and remarked to each other the lush beauty, also the uniformity of style right. um, with its hexagonal suggestion of a hive mind. I mean, this is a very different Mars than, than the Mars that we have been to before. And then a green and pleasant land, right? So, but you know, which again is another, you know, another sort of like, um, uh, like a 19th century reference, or I guess an late 18th century reference. Right. But this isn't like, um, you know, um, uh, right. So in that poem, Blake is saying, uh, you know, looking out at, um, England and seeing it, you know, transformed into the hell of early industrial capital. And of course he's seeing that before it actually has happened mm-hmm. um, fully. Um, and then saying, well, we'll, you know, but, you know, we will struggle until we build Jerusalem here in England's green and pleasant land. And so the status of England's green and pleasant land is kind of weird there because he's saying, this is what's being taken away from us and therefore it's what we have to make again and whatever like right, it's kind of an right. interesting and complicated reference but right, here right. but it's not a reference to something um um you know this but it's not a reference to like making like a disney version of england or a nostalgic version of england it's about saying like we have to fight now in order not to have this turned into this fully you know this fully like satanic place right yeah um anyway so i just i think that the kind of um uh we're in this space that's extremely beautiful but also feels like this this is the sort of artificiality of terraforming that you can make it whatever you want mm-hmm. um uh and you can make it in this unconstrained way right yeah. you know and and you know on the one hand like giving play to your fantasy like could be marvelous and on the other hand it could be making something that feels like a stage or Epcot Center, right? You know what I was going to mention back in the Swan chapter, and I can't remember. I'm not going to find it because I don't need to really quote it. But um, she's on the Henry the Henry David um, 
asteroid. No, a New Englander. <laughs> a New Englander. And it's in it's October there. And like, she's seeing a mama bear and a baby bear. And it's very adorable. Baby bear jumps into a water, water barrel, gives himself a bath. They're eating a bunch of apples off a tree. And she, but and one thing she leaf peaking season too, she right? does a little landscape art, little landscape art, like a sketch basically where she arranges all the red leaves, all the orange leaves, all the yellow leaves, and then the green grass and just kind of creates a little nice little uh, taste the rainbow starburst flavors. Uh, <laughs> Skittles, excuse me, Skittles. Uh, rainbow there on out of leaves. And it's, you know, that's a kind of... Um, a good contrast to this, to, yeah. to the Martian landscape, I guess, because it's so innocuous versus this one, which seems so totalizing and so, you know, controlled, yet beautiful. I mean, yet, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it does flash back to the place where she meets the the Alice in Wonderland scene where she meets the um, those silly girls and mm -hmm. the place where she meets the lawn bowler, both of which are like, have this kind of um british country house sort of referent to them and also where you know they're art they have an artificial quality that that manifests itself as a kind of taste tastelessness yeah um what in it, it, it interesting so then um it's interesting to think that part of the problem in those spaces is that they're kind of pastiche spaces right you know like they're a recreation, they're a recreation of something, um, but with like lots of references to different things kind of like smushed together into something that supposedly like, you know, calls back to uh -huh. the manor house or whatever it might be, um, which is a kind of a contrast to like she, Swan is like, I don't, you know, Ascensions was such a bad idea, like this mixing of terrains, like she wants something that's like more pure you know that like is really like picking up a sort of like you know re rebuilds a real environment or whatever it might be and then at some point zasha or somebody is like yeah but the ascensions are actually you know those are spaces in which we can actually like preserve more different kinds of life we can do more there and that's maybe that is partly because those are places where like um uh you know, unexpected things can happen as opposed to the attempt, the attempt to sort of like, you know, just like the, the, the typical New England, the New Englander terrarium feels a little bit like a cartoon of mm -hmm. New England. And then that also made me think about, I mean, I don't know where to go with this, but just like the biomes in Aurora, right. Mm -hmm. Which, um, both do and don't rebuild a particular sort of ecology, do and don't rebuild a particular kind of ecology. And they're right. the, um, you know, their islandiness is part of their problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's just the question of art and land, like art and landscape and landscape art and making the world basically. And yeah. what are the good ways to do it, the bad ways to do it? And are there any good or bad ways? It's just all equally problematic and weird. And it's just weird to be a human being well, on a rock <laughs> out in space. <laughs> But that maybe also, you know, um, uh, you know, there's a there's something to be said for like allowing things to emerge rather sure. than you know um, making it being like, hey, well, you know what? What about those canals? That was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the canals. Yeah, yeah, they're all coked up. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna make canals on Mars. Yeah, fucking yay. Fuck yeah. 
that's yes that's exactly what i'm i'm picturing uh yeah. they go and get married on the side of olympus monza it's one of these great classic ksr beautiful amazing landscape descriptions just fantastic olympus monza was so big that the distant horizon to the east and south was still part of the mountain they could not see the tharsis volcanoes over the horizon to the east nor any of the planet below the encircling escarpment all the land they could see was as bare and red as it had been in the beginning with only the blue rind of air over the horizon to reveal what they had done to this world. And, and then in the paragraph after that, the result looked like certain terraced hillsides in Asia, a few hundred bands of level land ran down the slope, the terrace walls between them curving like contour intervals on a map, which I just, I feel like is a callback to um, years of rice and salt. Right. right? Yeah. Um, you know, and again, the, the world is a garden. Right. The garden is utopia. Mm -hmm. What's the limit on, you know, the imagination that it's a garden that we want? Yeah. Is and what's the limit? Yeah. And what's the limit on what we can actually do and keep it healthy too, would be right. the other question that we face with climate change is that, you know, you, you know, I was, what, what, what I've been reading about, oh, I've been reading that book, uh, Mushroom at the End of the World about, oh, yeah. you know, blighted landscapes or like, you know, forests, destroyed forests, ruined forests and mushrooms and stuff like that. And it's, it's frustrating read that book, but um, I'm trying to yeah. <laughs> finish it. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. What are the limits to turning the world into a park? Um, and what is our conception of what a park is? I love what they're wearing. Everyone's all the people from yeah. Saturn are dressed in black. <laughs> And all those people from Mercury are dressed in like crazy red and yellow fire colors, colors. Yeah. fire colors. Yeah. I lo um, love that. Um, I love that. And also I'll say Swan's dress that made it look as if she stood in a rose of fire. That sounds like a nice dress. Cool dress. Um, very cool dress. <laughs> and Waram resembled a dreadful Roman emperor or yes, a great amphibian. Now we're in full on like Star Wars territory here. <laughs> Top of the hut. Oh, one of the hilarious things in this is there was also a group of Jeanette's old Martian friends, many of them smalls. Apparently, all the smalls at the festival were to congregate later to sing small favorites. Like, I met her in a Phobos restaurant, lovely Rita made, and we're off to <laughs> Why? Okay. I have to re listen to lovely Rita meter made. But... I don't know. I was thinking, is there something about being small in that? Is it because the they're high pitched and like lovely Rita Meter Maid has a kind of a high pitch? It's sung at the top of the register. Is it because Paul McCartney is a small? He's a small. <laughs> I met her in a Phobos restaurant. That's Martian Billy Joel over here. I love that. It's it's well, I, very cute. I do like the the songs that stand picks to survive like the next 300 years yes. and and off to see the wizard is clearly you know obviously well, gonna, gonna obviously stand the test of time um and then and, the one, yeah then and we are we are a little bit like in uh, uh, oz or ozzy territory yeah, anyway. yeah always always mm. um and i love i do love the description of the wedding um this like 115 year old guy and 137 year old woman um, and their the look on their friends' faces. Our friends are doing something crazy, their look said. Something crazy and beautiful. Isn't it great? Love, some kind of leap of the imagination, inexplicable. Um, 
and then a Dickinson poem. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. And I like the, I don't know if it's all in this chapter. I think it's kind of in the other, the Swan and Roram chapters, but the meditations on like marriage and what it would mean, like why someone who's going to live for multiple hundreds of years mm -hmm. would bother getting married and what marriage is marriage as a performance, um, you know, that it has to be kind of, you know, reiteratively performed, uh, like, you know, ritualistically every day or whatever, and lived and that kind of thing is um, nice. I mean, it also has, it also harkens back to like the thing that he, that is another meditation throughout Stan's work, which is like this idea of pair bonding and yeah. how it's feels very much like the structure of feeling that we've landed on for a long time and that there's no real necessarily end in sight in terms of its dominance, I guess. Um, even when sort of pairs form and break up and form again or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking it's interesting that the, um, uh, I, yeah, this ending was just making me think of um, the ending of ministry for the future mm -hmm. on Fasnach with Mary and the balloonist. The blimp guy, yeah. I can't remember what his Blimpy. name is. Blimpy. Well, I, I don't Henry? think Blimpy. Henry? Steve? <laughs> Renee. Uh, anyway, I, the um, again, they're the sort of like, um, I don't know. It's interesting to think about the, like, um, what the wedding or the, I mean, I guess the wedding, not the marriage, but you know, what the wedding offers as um, uh, a feeling of resolution or like a sort of needed feeling of the possibility of resolution, right? right. Um, uh, which you need not only to end in or in order to just end the book, but you need it in order to suggest that like there could be respite from the struggle, right? You know, I mean, so it can look like the avoiding of or the denial of or the stepping away from the struggle. And if it, in fact, I think it can be that, right? You know, particularly if you think about like, um, you know, marriage as a privatized and essentially possessive form, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but also here we have the, I mean, and, and this is a really, I think this is a really ambiguous final chapter. I mean, it's yeah. charming, it's funny. Um, uh, you know, and clearly they've, cho they've chosen to have their wedding on what's obviously like, you know, solar systemically, like the most cheesy day to have your wedding. I mean, it's the day right. when everybody gets married. <laughs> right. But then there is also something about that that makes it a different thing too, right? There's a kind of like, you know, there's a sweetness to the idea of this as, ritual as a ritual, you know, um, uh, and a different kind of ritual than the sort of like marriage, right. Right. Um, uh, some kind of collective ritual maybe. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of the utopia of utopias in the kind of, in the sense that like so many different people are getting married in the same spot. So like you hear, have this cacophony of, of music all around that is kind of a mess, but everybody's having their own, their own like private day. I mean, I think that, you know, and then also when they get after the ceremony's over, after the Dickinson has been read, um, Swan looks at him, uh, saw that he was squinting down the slope of Olympus, the look on his face, pensive, almost melancholy. 
She squeezed his hand and looked, and he looked at her. Well, he said with the tiniest of smiles, I guess now we get to walk the second half of the tunnel. No, she cried and thumped him in the chest, then jammed the ring over the knuckle of his ring finger. This is for life. It's ambivalent. I mean, like, I'm not like the, I guess walking the second half of the tunnel is like a chore. Mm. But he was um, looking forward to it, remember? He was looking forward to it. <laughs> and then, but she said, no, this is for life, which means it doesn't, it's not going to end or that, I don't know. It's well, it's right. Weird, or that, I don't I mean, He, because he did see, he did feel in his way that the walking through the tunnel was life. Right. Not that life is walking through a tunnel, but that he was still, he was just in a different, you know, a different pseudo iterative right. in the tunnel. And that's like how he got through with it. But for her, it was utterly and dramatically opposed to life. Right, and, right. I mean, and not just because she nearly died, but also because like, that's not what life is to her. So it's so like there, it's funny because so they're both experiencing the exact same thing, but they have a totally different yeah, ways yeah. of expressing it. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think too that like just mm -hmm. ending with a wedding or a marriage is, I mean, I just watched the new Matrix movie. Um, and like, as far as, I mean, it doesn't end in a wedding, but um, uh, as far as like pair bonding goes, as far in terms of like conventional endings for, for imagined narratives or whatever, um, it's still it, it's an interesting question to ask like why it's why that still has utility um for yeah. our narratives wow. <laughs> right especially when so many of them break up or whatever and blah 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 all that kind of stuff and we all yeah. and we all know like the hazards of you know long-term pair bonding and all that kind of thing yeah but i mean you know it's not a it's not a matter of knowing better right i mean right. were it so many things would be different, but I, sure. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that the kind of, um, um, uh, marriage is a resolution to narrative or, um, the idea of, um, you know, the good marriage or even the good partnership. I, I, I think that those, um, uh, you know, those are ideas that haven't been around historically for all that long. I mean, they get sort of solidified in the 19th century. Right. Um, and I think that partly they stay with us for exactly those reasons, right? Um, I mean, and, you know, this it is the kind of, you know, what is the, uh, um, what's the resolution to the problem of life being long? You know, well, you... <laughs> you know, one resolution to that is death. And the other resolution is it would be good to have a companion. <laughs> yeah. Find somebody to hang around you until you die. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously like, I think these things are inseparable from like a set of historical conditions that demand that we, you know, rigorously uh, demarcate the public and the private, the productive and the reproductive, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you know, sure. I don't need to get into that. I mean, That's you know, conversation it's, for it's a funny thing to do in a, to end do in a book that, um, gives us, um, a great deal of like complicated and I think really serious thinking about gender. Um, yeah. and I think it does that. I think it's self-conscious certainly, yeah. you know, it's yeah. not like a, just a naive 
resolution. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it makes you think about why you want that to happen too, you know, mm-hmm. why you want them to end up together, which is a they're funny a cute thing couple. to want. They're a cute couple. Because they're a cute couple. Exactly. I mean, frog and, uh, frog and swan, toad and swan. Toad and swan. Adorable. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, are we done? I, well, I think so. I, lo- I loved this book. and It was, it was really- so great. It was not only great to read it again, it was just, it was really wonderful to talk about it with you. It was wonderful to talk about it with you too. Um, I know our audience enjoyed it, um, if they're still listening. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh... Yeah. Um, and thank you, Stan, for writing it. Yeah, it's such a great book. We appreciate it. Sometime, and... we'll, sometime we'll read Memory of Whiteness and then we'll talk about what they have to do with each other. Yeah, that would be good. Um, eventually. uh, Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's all for us for now, uh, for the next several weeks, we'll be back. Actually, we'll probably be back in a few weeks to talk about a movie or something. And then we'll be back to talk about green earth, but yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening. And thanks uh, for your patience, your forbearance, your tolerance, everything. Uh, happy new <laughs> happy new year and uh oh happy new year hey 2022 today this one's gonna be our year folks you should uh in the show notes you should link to that great gramsci why i hate new year's day piece oh okay i'll find it it's in it's in viewpoint it's easy to um, okay easy to find okay. it at google just it yeah i um, will do that you new know year's great day. Great, great little, great little essay. Okay, I can't wait to read this. Great little essay. It's the perfect thing to take you into the new year. All right. Take time back, everybody. (laughs) Reclaim your time. Be good to yourselves, everybody. Look for the real newness, not this fucking fake newness they give us to get us back to work. Oh, God. Okay, we're not going to get into that uh, because we've already had enough time. Okay, so. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.